Today we're talking bread, and not just talking about bread, I'm also making bread. Bread's very big in my diet, I have a toast every morning. I could live on bread, I must admit, and of course, historically, people did live on bread. If you look at the income spent on bread in the UK, it was up to 80% of the labourer's income at one time. It's culturally very important, you know, mm. breaking bread. At the moment, you know, it's 20% of the UK calories, but it's still 50% in some countries. If you go to Kazakhstan or somewhere like that, you know, half the calories will come from bread. Parts of the Middle East, um, North Africa, again, up to half the calories will come from bread. So in today's episode of The Science Behind Your Salad, we're talking about wheat. It's the second episode devoted to the crop because it's so widely grown and so widely eaten that it commands a second outing. So here's what you missed and what is still available to listen to. Wheat's consumed by 2.5 billion people worldwide. That really sets the context for, for why the improvement of wheat is so important. And over half of the world's wheat is grown in the developing world in the global south, feeding a really significant number of people who are reliant on, on wheat, not only as a source of calories, but also as a source of, of protein, uh, energy and, and other dietary components in their, their day-to-day lives. Wheat as a global commodity, it's a mainstay. As everyone knows, bread is on the table of pretty much everyone's household. And as a basic commodity, we see it as being a critical component that is going to be needed now and in the future. But back to the now. Today our senses will be exposed to sounds, smells, tastes that hopefully fill you with as much joy as me. But first of all, I'm going to get my hands dirty and my fingers sticky. I make bread regularly, and throughout this episode I will be making some loaves. But before I begin, here's what a local master baker told me. Gary Smith is a neighbour of mine. Gary, what sort of breads have you made during your career, and what's your favourite? Bread that I would like to make, and always did, is a, is a, more of a sweet type of a bread uh, a fruited tea cake you can put a lot of sugar in it and spice in it on and a lot of fruit and less fruit but of course that is just one of the breads that we make and in terms of savory breads a very good quality plain white is it takes some beating if you use a very good quality flour strong flour um, you need to put some fat in there a little bit of sugar to feed the yeast um, possibly some some milk powder or something there to flavor the the bread as well and it obviously keeps a lot longer if you've got a certain amount of fat in it and if somebody's starting to make their own breads what would be your top tips for them well of course buy decent flour i mean um organic strong flour with a minimum of 12 percent protein and what's the favorite bread that you like to eat it's got to be a toasted tea cake with nice currants in it loads and loads of currants in so once they're toasted it's just amazing i'm about to bake some bread so i have a 25 kilo bag of white traditional flour strong flour for bread making and i also have a 16 kilo bag of khorasan flour which is an ancient grain that originates from the Iranian 
province of Khorasan. And it's still grown today. It's a very big grain and it gives a really lovely nutty taste to the bread when you make it. I actually make four loaves at a time. So I've mixed a half and half of Khorasan and white and each loaf has 500 grams of flour and each loaf has uh, seven grams of dried active yeast. You can use fresh as well but um, I only make bread about once every two weeks so it doesn't keep long enough. Bread, pasta, cakes, I could go on and on about wheat-based foods. They're all brilliant examples of a series of ingredients coming together but the key to all of these foods is flour. And obviously, as we all know, the flour comes from wheat. But there is a missing element to our story so far, and that is how grains of wheat became the key to making bread. Professor Peter Shuri is a botanist at Rothamsted Research. As it turns out, he's something of a wheat guru. People started consuming wheat when they were hunter-gatherers. As soon as they started farming about 10,000 years ago, sort of one of the crops they started growing was wheat but mainly pasta-type wheats, what we call tetraploid wheats, particularly emma. That would probably be consumed for 10 or 20,000 years, or even more before that, but then they started growing it. And actually, while they were growing it, um, they found that a new form form arrived, which was actually red wheat. Red wheat was never a wild crop. It developed in cultivation, and it developed probably by hybridisation of a type of early pasta wheat with a wild grass. And that started about 10,000 years ago again. So we've been growing wheat for 10,000 years. During that period, it spread from the Middle East and uh, particularly South Turkey and the Fertile Crescent and spread um, pretty well across the world. So now it's the most widely grown crop in the world um, in terms of geographical distribution. You know, we grow it from the tropics in high areas up into Scandinavia and down into South America. And it's the most widely traded. And unlike rice, it's only consumed really after processing. You, know, you you never sit down and eat a bowl of wheat grain, whereas you do eat rice. Um, so throughout its cultivation, there's been a big interest in um, how we how we produce foods, particularly bread, and they've tended to select for processing quality at the same time they've tried to improve the yield. But as Peter said, we didn't all decide one day to sit down and eat grains of wheat from the ears of corn. In order to make bread, grains need to be ground into flour so how did wheat first become bread? I mean, all cereals, you have to try and soften them. You know, they're all too hard to eat. So the way you soften them is either by boiling them, in the case of rice, or you can then grind them and you can make a sort of porridge. And so nowadays, sort of maize mealy is basically maize porridge. It's ground porridge and it's, you know, it's eaten quite a lot in Africa, made from either maize or sorghum or from millets. Um, in the case of wheat, they probably left it around in some pots where they had some yeast or some sourdough from, say, pots they used for storing milk and they found it started fermenting and it started forming a sort of mass um, which you know we, we know now as dough and then they started finding that they could actually bake that and get, and get a decent product. It probably started with sourdough, um, they think the sourdough is an older process than yeast does um, and it probably fortuitous, you know you use the same pots for several, several things and don't wash them properly and you get a bit of milk in your, um, in, in, in your wheat and end up with bread. I'm just about to start kneading and one of the important things that a baker told me once is when you start kneading by hand it's a good idea to wet your hands first and then the dough doesn't stick as much as it would otherwise. 
And also you're not adding more flour, which is another way to stop it sticking is to add flour to your hands, but that adds more flour to the mix and can make it too dry. So I'll knead this for about 10 minutes. And you know, to start with, what you find is that the dough is very sticky and it sticks to your hands and to the side of the bowl. But after about five minutes of kneading, the gluten starts to work, activate, and the mixing and the time kneading brings everything together. And then you always end up with a clean bowl. All of the bits of flour and tiny bits of dough all gather into one big lump of dough. I love it when the dough starts coming together, as it is now, into a ball. It's warm, it's soft, and it smells so rich, wholesome, and homely. It's just such a lovely smell. Once I finish kneading, I will put the bowl into a warm place and then I wet a towel or a cloth and put it over the top of the bowl and just leave it until it's doubled in size. So that's the dough, 10 minutes of kneading and that's it. It's complete, the bowl is completely clean. I'm just going to scrape the last of the dough off my hands and that's ready to go and rise for a few hours and meanwhile I will make some cakes. While the dough rises let's discover how wheat growers can be helped to ensure that they can maximise the return from their crops. We've discussed Zavio from BSF throughout the series. It's the digital field management tool that helps farmers get the most out of their fields. Clemens Hagenbeck is from Zavio Healthy Fields. He started by explaining how the technology is easily available to farmers all over the world. It's um, a handheld device, you can put it on a mobile, you can put it on a, on a tablet and even your desktop in your office. All these devices or solutions are linked and the farmer has 24-7 every time he wants access to this information. We provide farmers with an opportunity to optimize their crop production and really on their individual fields and field zones using these digital tools um, to support them better in oversight and delivers really precise agronomic data-based recommendations. And they're based on satellite imagery, local weather information, soil data and other data sources we can tap on. And this data is combined and constantly analyzed by live agronomic algorithms and models. And this provides farmers with a convenient and really time alerts and dependable, actionable insights what to do and how to do their crop production and protection. And uh, farmers um, are using Savio to conveniently undertake the whole crop management process. Wheat is one of the most important crops in the world. So for wheat, you can, with our solution, treat better, treat less. We increase the security by um, de-risking um, uncertainties instead of weather predictions. Uh, and we give you a peace of mind. For example, with Healthy Fields, we are selling you an outcome. An outcome in terms of a certain disease or health level at the end of the season. So um, if we sell you an outcome, uh, you can lie back and we will give you decisions and the recommendation when to do what. And if the outcome isn't achieved, we will give you a cashback. So it's a really new way of thinking, which is changing the way we do business.
We are able to help farmers to make more precise applications, reduce nutrients or pesticides we use. And so we increase here really the sustainability and biodiversity on these fields. And this way we are actively helping farmers to address here challenges of climate change and meet the future of food production needs of increasing world population. So what, what are we doing is we can really track locally, field zone specifically, weather changes and weather conditions and tailor the recommendations and the data inside a farmer can access to these conditions. For example, last, last season, uh, we saw in, in May um, really changing conditions here. It was a really cold spring with a lot of frost night and it was really difficult to farmers to understand, oh, can I go out? Am I allowed to go out? We also help farmers here in terms of documentation and compliance because a lot of products we use in farming are, are bound to certain rules. We want to help farmers to reach this balance between the sustainability and the environmental protection on one hand and um, by reducing the complexity to achieve this goal and on the other hand the economic burden they have to meet today. The dough has been rising for about four hours in a not as warm as I would like place so it's taken a little bit longer in the height of summer that would have risen in an hour and be ready to knock back for the second rising so I'm just knocking it back again and putting it into loaf tins one two three Four. And I'll put that back to rise, hopefully, for just another hour. Savio can really enable farmers to understand their fields. There are still a host of challenges to the crop in the shape of diseases that can threaten a crop of wheat. Fungal infections, such as septoria leaf blotch, can seriously damage crops and subsequently hit yields. Septoria is a pathogen that attacks the green leaves, the chlorophyll, reducing the ability of the plant to carry out photosynthesis. It causes significant yield loss every year. It also affects grain quality. Losses of 50% may occur in severely affected crops. But fungal infections are really tricky things. They can adapt to beat the best of fungicides. And so if scientists don't keep coming up with new fungicides, we'll lose as the fungi keep adapting. Septoria has the ability to adapt to become highly resistant. And so new fungal infections require new fungicides. And so what's needed is a superhero amongst the fungicides. So, enter Revisol. We'll hear more about what makes this treatment so vital shortly, but first, here's a little bit of the promo material to accompany the release of the fungicide and some of the scientists involved in its conception. Trials of fungicides are the backbone of fungal disease control. They show highest performance and are thus best mixing partners for other fungicides. We use molecular modeling to help guide molecule optimization. This led to the identification of a flexible isopropanol linker, the part of the molecule crucial for Revisol's strong binding to the fungal target. After design, the molecules will be synthesized in all labs. This is the new triazole fungicide. Here at the greenhouse, we run biological efficacy trials to identify the most effective formulation candidates. We test the different formulation candidates, for example, in wheat, 
against septoria and brown rust. We report back to our formulation colleagues who further optimize the best formulation candidates. These systemic properties combined with the optimized formulation allow product use at low water volumes under practical conditions. And to tell us more in easy to understand language, here's Dieter Strobel from BASF. It is a plant protection product, more precisely a fungicide, which acts like a remedy for plants, protecting the plant against diseases which would otherwise infect the crop and decrease overall photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is really important to the outcome from crop. The more we can protect the photosynthesis of the plant, the more yield or grain the farmers can harvest. So Dieter, you mentioned a number of wheat diseases that Revisol treats and controls. Please could you tell us what the main diseases are that it controls in wheat? Well, the uh, toy is by far the most relevant from a, both from our occurrence and the, or the yield uh, point of view from Europe. Uh, and therefore, toy uh, was uh, a key target in the efficacy delivery for Revisol. But uh, we have to state that Revisol is really broad spectrum. It has a, a fantastic control on rust diseases, the brown rust, the yellow rust. And uh, it also shows very interesting control on Ramularia in Bali, which is an, an, a further spreading disease. We even discovered that it has a control of eye spot so a lot of additional features, not only as a Septoria specialist, but the main uh, image outside is driven by Septoria as of its uh, dominance. Some of those diseases that affect the ear uh, cause real problems and are very dangerous for humans, which is one of the reasons why fungicides are so important. Please, could you just tell us a little bit about some of those um, worrying ear diseases if, if they weren't treated with fungicides? Exactly. That is a, a heated discussion, especially if you want to go for organic produce, there is a risk that Fusarum species take over on the wheat ear, they infect the ear and the, the nasty thing is these uh, fungi produce mycotoxins, which end up in the grain and uh, as a processed grain end up in your food. And uh, there are thresholds to avoid that this becomes a health problem, but clearly it is a, it is a, an effect uh, of this fungi and tailor-made solutions for ear treatment, we could uh, significantly reduce the threat and the level of such mycotoxins. During its development, tell me what problems Revisol was developed to overcome. I guess the two major problems Revisol addressed from a technical perspective were pathogen resistance and meeting the ever more stringent and difficult requirements for registration of a plant protection product. Several commercial fungicides have lost their efficacy as pathogens have managed to develop resistance mechanisms. It is a long process to find a new active ingredient that can easily take 12 to 50 years. The whole process acts like a big funnel. On average, about 100,000 compounds have to be screened and tested to deliver one final new active ingredient. It took our experts still two years to screen about 4,000 variants until they were satisfied with the outcome. A vast amount of multi-year studies were initiated afterwards to fulfill all kinds of regulatory requirements for approval, which took us another four years. 
the last step is product registration at country level. So from the first screening of a candidate to first product approval in Europe, that took us about nine years, which was a fantastic effort from the BSF team and shows how science and innovation thinking can be used to support farmers in producing quality food efficiently and sustainably. The requirements to register a new active ingredient are getting more and more stringent as both scientific methodologies and knowledge continually advance and develop. This is a good thing as we know more and more about our product and how they behave from a health and environmental perspective. Finding something that meets safety and environmental requirements is one thing, but it also needs to be a product which outperforms the farmer's expectations on effectiveness and yield delivery. And this is always a balance. With an increasing number of products being withdrawn from use in the market and in crops and progress resistance development, farmers are losing more and more options to keep their wheat crops healthy. Revisul gives farmers back the options they need to run an efficient and sustainable business. There, that's the science bit. But let's hear from the farmers that work with Revisol in the field. What difference can it make to crops? Here's Mike Hamley. He farms in southeast Cornwall in the United Kingdom. The challenge that we really face here is, is one to do with climate. Uh, and for us, the issue of climate is both the amount of rainfall that we get and the warmer conditions that, that comes with that. And really that makes us uh, an area which is a hotspot for cereal disease. And in particular, the most damaging of cereal foliar diseases to wheat, which are the septoria species. What septoria diseases do is they, they rob yield from us. Uh, once it's in the crop, uh, it, it can be, it's, it's spread really by rain splashes as they sort of fall onto the crop and, and those spores from the pycnidia spread out across the crop. So yes, you can, you can see a, a focus of infection and you can see that, that getting worse. And typically you'll find the disease on the lower leaves of the crop. And then as the crop is growing through the different growth stages and growing up through rain splash events, that, that disease can spread from the lower leaves onto the upper leaves. And, and why that's particularly important is that as the crop develops through the summer, it's the upper leaves that have the largest leaves that, that trap the most of the incident radiation and they're the biggest contributor to our, to our final yield. The other important factor that, um, and benefit that we can get from using fungicides is preserving the quality of the grain, uh, and, and that can be um, very important. What Revisol did was, was provide a new mode of actions, uh, and, and we really saw that difference in terms of the level of control that we were able to achieve in the field. And we've had some, some pretty challenging years um, since the introduction of Revisol here. One of the things that I find is, is really good with Revisol, yes, yes, it's effective uh, in terms of controlling the disease. Yes, it preserves quality. But all those things, it's, it's a tool that's helping me to manage the risk of growing the crop. Um, and, and just as we sit here today with, with really um, frightening inflation in some of the agricultural impacts that, that go into it. The risk that I take on now in growing a crop, you know, where we've seen fertilizer more than double in price uh, in, in a matter of months, 
is, is considerable and that's why I need to make sure that I can protect that investment and help to manage the risk. So that's the bread all risen, beautifully risen and ready to go into the oven. So your reward for sticking with us through the technical detail is to be immersed in the good stuff because wheat is amazing. It tastes amazing. So I'm going to look at two projects that highlight how good produce made with wheat can be. While the loaves I've been making are cooking, let's hear about a project underway in Germany to promote conservation and sustainability. Across the UK, there has been a decline in farmland bird species. And this is, statistics show, replicated across the whole of Europe. The skylark is a very important species, an indicator of good biodiversity on farms. And so now many farmers try to provide the birds with areas to nest in within their fields. This involves leaving parts of the fields bare for the skylarks to nest. These so-called skylark plots provide a safe place for the birds to nest. But in Germany, there is a project underway that promotes the work of farmers. Lark's bread is made from flour produced from wheat grown in fields with skylark plots. So with each loaf bought, consumers can do their bit to protect biodiversity. To tell us more, I have spoken to Annabelle Gotz and Dirk Wuste. Annabelle is from a chain of regional bakers and Dirk is from BASF. So the idea was more or less born in one of our offices where I together stood with a, with a colleague and said, you know, how could we really make biodiversity more tangible and move it from something where farmers normally or, or say, hey, come on, I need in addition to do biodiversity on top of production, how can we really combine it? And then, you know, the idea said, but how can we bring it even more to closer to consumers. How can we really show what you know biodiversity in terms of the larks and the hatching in the field could really bring? And then the idea was quickly born, uh, and we thought, come on, let's give it a try. And we approached Becker, uh, Becker Gertz and, and Annabel, your father, Peter. I think it took him a split of a second to say, hey, that's cool, that's a great idea. I'm in. And Annabel, tell me about the loaf itself that you make with the wheat. Um, we were able to create a really nice one. So we used um, different grains, for example. Um, we gave the dough a lot of time, which is really, really nice um, for this end product, kind of. And I think all in all, we created a really nice bread. And what has been the reaction of farmers, the farmers that have been involved with the project? Farmers have been, you know, first of all, curious in the beginning. And now what, it, what they've seen is they're extremely happy and we have more and more farmers really signing up. So the program is going from year to year because what farmers do get at the end of the day, an area where you know, the larks, as you said, they have a kind of runway because they need to, to, to let's say, um, start and land in the field to get close to their nests. In this area, of course, there is no wheat grown. So farmers in principle have less yield per acre but with a lark loaf and there's a little there's a certain incentive on the bread which is then transported directly to the farmers they have a much higher profitability at the end than regular fields they see that they can do something for biodiversity which is extremely important for the long-term maintenance of their farm of the soil health and the health of their of their business and on the other hand they're seeing they're having a higher income doing something for biodiversity so all in all very very positive feedback and you started off, Dirk, with just 40 hectares. 
Um, where are you now and what is your vision for the future in terms of the number of farmers and hectares? Yeah, I think we are now with 170 hectares. Uh, in the second year, and there is a lot of learning, you know, um, yeah, Annabelle and then the baker, uh, the bakery girls we did together, you know, how do you communicate about biodiversity? We are currently, let's say, doing a film project and communication project together. It's a lot of learning. It's the first time we did it, and we are extremely happy that now, meanwhile we have 170 hectares. And we don't have a vision where we want to be, but I think what we have in our as a vision is to really implement this concept very, very broadly. And not only in Germany, where we started very locally, but also across Europe and other countries. And, and the skylark is a very important species, of, an indicator of, of good biodiversity on farms. We want to talk much more about not only farming, but the benefit to society and consumers and the lark loaf is, is something, and, and the lark especially is something, as you just said, Jane, an indicator species. So you can really make it very, very tangible of what you're doing. And, and Dirk, a final question from me. Could all farmers farm in this way with a small area set aside for biodiversity and not just the skylark, but other species as well? All farmers, and, and a lot of farmers do. So they do quite a lot of biodiversity already and they can do more. And, and I think the point is to educate and show, and we have this farm network, for example, across Europe to really show what farmers could do in specific areas. We need to produce more, but we need to produce more and better. So it's a way how we can produce a better yield, like the yield ending up in the lark loaf at the end of the day. So all farmers can do it. It has to be very specific, but it's also very important that these are not isolated activities because biodiversity needs to be in an ecosystem. Those ecosystems have to be somewhat linked to each other because then you really get the benefits out of it. Because on one side you have birds, on the other hand you have insects, then you need flowers, and they need to fit together to really maximize biodiversity. You can even say, you know, you need to farm biodiversity. The bread's had 20 minutes, so it's looking, let me just open the door. Oh yeah, that's looking great. Just taking it out. That's the first loaf. We'll tip it out. Just tapping the base of the loaf to see if it's done. And that hollow sound says that that is beautifully baked and that's ready to go on a cooling rack. What's clear is that farming can play a role in conservation of nature. With a little thought and extra effort, wildlife can thrive alongside agriculture. And if that bread doesn't all get eaten up, then maybe Dirk and Annabelle should call Kay Barton because Kay is always on the lookout for unused bread. Why? because the company he works for, Craftsell, has a particular use for the uneaten bread. Here's a clue. Scientists uh, once found out that uh, people in the distant past uh, used to brew some uh, sort of beer by using fermented bread. We reactivated this concept somehow um, because of the huge amount of uh, wasted bread in Germany that is uh, simply um, thrown away. We get our uh, bread mostly from bakeries and um, at the bottom line it's, it's overproduced. 
So that is why it is uh, thrown away in the end and uh, well, we, we make something new out of it. So um, the basic sustainability idea is to prevent bread from disposal and not to uh, and to upcycle uh, these leftovers. Currently, uh, there is an amount of about uh, 800,000 tons of bread that is being disposed in Germany every year. So uh, that's quite a lot and we give it a second chance and turn it into something great. We get it locally, we get it from bakeries just around our brew house. So I would say with a maximum distance of about maybe 30 kilometers or something. So yeah, it's all sourced locally. And what other ingredients do you put in and are they local as well? The brewing process is um, very similar to any regular brewing process uh, that you have. and. Um, so we substitute about um, 15 to 20 percent of the malt with the uh, with the bread, um, and uh, the other ingredients, which is then of course malt. Eisenmann, Eisenmann, they supply us with their hops, and um, they source the hops uh, mostly regionally, so southern Germany. And the malt comes from a company called Westmalz. They are actually based in. Heidelberg and Heidelberg is where we have our offices. And what is the beer like? We're all used to German beers. They're they're great. Um, how does it? How is it similar to the beers that Germany produces? And how is it different? What does it look like? Taste mm -hmm. like? Tell us a little bit more about it. Well, uh, the beer you can uh, say it's uh, it goes in some direction of a German Keller beer. Um, that means there is a very high drinkability. The color is uh, like amber. Uh, and the bread parts um, cause some salty results, a very nice full-bodied taste that uh, you can say even resonates after swallowing, so we are people of it. One of the nicest things about baking bread is then having the first slice of warm bread. going to put some butter on that. Oh, the butter's melting as I spread it. I'm just taking a bite of the bread. Mmm, really crispy top to it. Give me a lovely crust. Mmm, that is so good. The main thing you need to do now is not eat the whole loaf which is very, very tempting. It's such a lovely way to pass some time to make some bread. And it's a lovely thing to do for your family, but also it's a lovely thing to do for your friends, to take a, a loaf of bread when you go and visit. So if you've never made any bread before, have a look at the link on the podcast page. And there's some recipes and how to get started. So please have a go and support your local millers who also support their local farmers. Thank you for listening to the science behind your salad from BASF. Be sure to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.